This is episode 15 of Resolving Reality Radio, and I speak to Israeli public speaker and human rights activist Miko Peled. Miko is the author of a book called The General Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, and in this interview we discuss the Israel-Palestine conflict and Zionism. Visit Miko's website, mikopeled.com, for articles and interviews. Okay, Miko, welcome to Resolving Reality Radio. Good to speak to you today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. No worries. Um, my pleasure. I um, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to be in the program, so thanks for that. Um, our topic of discussion today is, of course, uh, Israel-Palestine conflict, Zionism, and uh, recent events, of course. But um, let's uh, first introduce you to the audience and um, go over your background briefly, because it's uh, it's very interesting. And, and I know this is a long story, so you know you can be as brief as you like, of course. But uh, basically, tell us how you became an Israeli who was critical of, of Israel and Zionism? Well, the short story is that, um, or the short version of the story is that I began to meet Palestinians and and, um, and become aware of the reality in which Palestinians live and the reality in which Palestinians were placed as a result of the creation of the State of Israel. So, you know, the, 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 the title of my first book is The General Son and the subtitle is Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. So, Growing up as an Israeli, you know, you, I grew up in the sphere of this privileged the occupier, the colonizer, where there's always running clean running water in the tap and there's always electricity and there's always the traffic is good and the car and the roads are paved and so on. So I didn't know that there was a real, another reality. And I took this journey as an Israeli who comes from that very privileged sphere to Palestine, in other words, to the part of the country that remains Palestine and where the Palestinians reside. And it's, I mean, it's really no more than a few miles away, you know, because it's a small country, sometimes across the street. And then I came to terms or I came to to realize what the reality is in which Palestinians live. And as a consequence of that, what it means to be an Israeli, what it means to be a Zionist, a Zionist and, uh, I couldn't accept it, so I had to reject it. And so today, this is what I do. I, I, I speak and I write uh, about rejecting Zionism and rejecting the idea of the state of Israel in favor of a democracy and in favor of a reality, a political reality, uh, that would remedy the situation for Palestinians and allow the refugees to return and so forth. Right, okay. And um, so, yeah, it's definitely humanitarian reasons that prompted you to kind of um, to do what you do. And when we look at the um, Israeli-Palestinian conflict overall and how it's viewed in the world, um, I suppose many people view it as a sort of a back and forth, sort of to and fro conflict, like a sort of an, an eye for an eye situation um, in terms of the, the violence and things like that. Um, you know, what's the difference between how people view it in general and what the truth is, uh, do you think? And, I mean, is it really as black and white as as people, um, some people perceive it to be? It is absolutely black and white. I mean, it's a question of right and wrong. It's a question of values. Like, you know, it, um, it has really nothing to do with politics or religion, which is what people try to make of it. It has to do with our values. If we accept racism, if we are willing to legitimize the violence that comes with racism, the violence that comes with ethnic cleansing and genocide, if we're willing to legitimize that, 
then we can legitimize the state of Israel and indeed call the country Israel, which is a name that was given to it on, you know, exactly 71 years ago, you know, on the 15th of May. Um, if we reject racism, if we reject violence, then we cannot legitimize what, it, what has happened in Palestine and we cannot use the name Israel. We must call the country by the name that the indigenous people call it, which is Palestine, and the name that it's been used has been used to describe this country uh, for four millennia, you know, for, since the Bronze Age. So I think it's a question of values. Now, the way it's presented in the West is primarily through the view of the Zionists, for the view of the state of Israel. And uh, that's problematic because kids, children learn this in school and then they uh, hear about this when they go to college and then they see it in the news and the narrative that is the prevailing narrative is the narrative of the Zionists, of the occupier, of the colonizer. Um, and that's very tragic. On the other hand, I think what is you know, a sign of hope is that this is changing. Um, and you have people on the ground who are standing up for Palestine on university campuses all over the world, uh, doing protests on days like the commemoration of the Palestinian catastrophe, which is coming up. There are protests planned. And then you have countries like South Africa who actually uh, downgraded its diplomatic mission. Ireland, who I believe Parliament uh, voted in favor of boycotting Israeli products and so forth. So this is a process that's taking place now. Granted, it's quite late and it's very slow and Palestinians are still are still dying and languishing in refugee camps. But at least we're we have we just start. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good thing. Um, and you've said before in, in your, uh, I remember one of your great speeches, you talked about, you described the, the IDF themselves, the, um, for those who don't know, the Israeli Defense Forces as being um, like a, a well-funded, well-trained um, terrorist organization. What, why did you describe them in this way? Because when I take a look at the last 71, or actually more than 71 years, the actions of the Israeli army, the Israeli defense forces, and the militia, the Zionist militia that, that preceded it. And I say this, you know, with a father who was a general in the Israeli army and was an officer in one of these militias prior to 1948. And uh, I myself served in the Israeli army for three years, did my mandatory service and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, when we look at the mission, when we look at what the Israeli army has been doing for the last seven decades, it is nothing more than terrorizing the Palestinian people and maintaining a terror and terrorizing actually not only the Palestinian people, but terrorizing people in Lebanon and in Syria and in other countries around uh, around Palestine. So granted, they have uniforms and they're very well funded. I mean, really, when you take the foreign aid that comes from the U.S. plus all the kind of the not-for-profit organizations that pour money into the Israeli army through smaller um, not-for-profit organizations or groups. Israeli soldiers can swim in $100 bills. And when we look at the weapons, you know, they've got the most advanced weapon systems in the world. Uh, so, but still, they are nothing but a terrorist organization. So they are well-fed and well-funded and, 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 um, and very well-armed. But they're nothing more than a terrorist organization because that is what they do. They terrorize people. They fight mostly against an unarmed population. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. It's a great point that often goes over people's heads because they 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 think that a terrorist doesn't have a uniform and a soldier does, but it's it's in the behaviour, like you said. And um, you know, the next question here is a little bit kind of dramatic, and um, so forgive the dramatic nature of it, I suppose. But um, you know, if there is certainly an attitude within the Israeli state or certainly the IDF to have this almost um, like genocidal attitude towards the the Palestinians. Um, what, what what's kind of what has stopped them? Do you think from just totally rolling in and doing a complete number on on the Gaza Strip and so forth? You, you think it's because they, they wouldn't want to go that far, or because they'd be worried about the the international reaction to doing that? Well, I think yes. I think those are two good reasons. I mean, the the the, the, the international community can only stomach so much death and destruction. And I think the uh, the Israeli governments over the last, you know, since Israel was established, the last seven decades, have a sense for what the international community can stomach. And so back in 1948, there was a willingness, there was no problem to kick out close to a thousand, uh, close to a million, excuse me, uh, Palestinians and conduct massacres throughout the country and so forth. Today, things are a little bit different. So... When Israel bombs, they have to be careful how many casualties they actually uh, create, how many pro- how many casualties, how many injured, and even though this is this is this is quite this is quite horrifying. Um, over the last year, we saw them we saw snipers killing uh, unarmed Palestinians and injuring countless of unarmed Palestinians in Gaza who were marching the Great March of Return, marching to demand their rights to go home. To their lands, which are beyond the beyond the fence, beyond the concentration camp that Israel created there, um, and still, I think they are working within some certain parameters that they think the world can stomach. If they thought they could, they would roll in and perhaps complete the genocide quickly. Right now, it's kind of a slower, uh, slower genocide because Palestinians are being killed practically every day, whether it's in the in parts of the West Bank, whether it's in. 1948 Palestine, or what people like to call Israel proper, um, through uh, no through lack of clean water, lack of access to medicine and medical care, through negligence um, when Palestinian day laborers work in construction and there's no there are no safety guidelines, and there's a week on, on, a, on a regular almost on a daily basis there are casualties of Palestinians that that fall to their death in, in working in construction on, in, inside of you know, in Israeli cities and so forth. So Palestinians are dying and being killed on a regular basis all over the country all the time. Um, but the pace, yes, I think that the, the pace has to be quite slow right now, relatively slow, based on what I think Israel gauges the world international community can stomach. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I think that says a lot about the mindset as well involved here. And, um, when um, to look at the other side as well, because as I'm sure you're aware, especially in Europe and well, I think it's mostly in Europe. There's a lot of discussion about uh, Islamic extremism, you know, coming from a section of the Muslim community. Um, and so, looking at the Palestinians, um, what about violent Muslims? Is do they have an influence in the Palestinian community? Well, I, you know, I, in this context, I don't know what that means. Um, Palestinians have been, you know, have been 
conducting a what I believe is a completely legitimate uh, campaign of resistance or several campaigns of resistance throughout the last 70 years, throughout the years that their country has been occupied and they've been subjected to a, a horrifying oppression. I don't think that those are signs of extremism. I think those are signs of a nation that is, that is fighting for its rights. So I, I don't know that the extremist Islam, Muslim, all, you know, all, this, you know, all these terms have any, any relevance when we talk about Palestine. Mm-hmm. Interesting, yeah, because there's just an out and now um, struggle for rebellion. Of course, you know, being Irish, I can relate to that. It's part of our history as well, to uh, you know, having to resist British imperialism. So, um, you know, they're legitimate forms for sure. And you know how recently, after the recent events over there, you'll have you know all of the arguments back and forth and the different opinions on the situation. And some people, you know, looking on social media, I've seen people say things like, "Oh well, you know." Hamas started it and this is what happens. Israel's just defending itself. But I've also heard other opinions over the years saying that, you know, they're they're not even keel at all in terms of military power. And I mean, what what kind of weapons do the um are, are, do Hamas have compared to the Israelis? Well, we're talking about um the Gaza Strip or actually anywhere in Palestine. First of all, Palestinians have never had an army. Palestinians have never had a tank or a warplane, or a helicopter. Israel has got one of the largest arsenals of tanks and warplanes and, and every bit of modern uh, weaponry that you could possibly imagine. There's no, there's, there's no, there's, we can't even begin to compare uh, the two sides in terms of, in terms of military hardware. There's no even, there's not even, there's not even a, a, a there's nowhere to compare. It's, 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 it's two completely different, two completely diff- different powers. One has enormous power, an enormous army, and the other doesn't have an army at all, just some, uh, you know, a few groups of, 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 of resistance fighters. Um, a few battalions of resistance fighters. There's no room for comparison at all. And in terms of who started it, you know, it's very, it's very, it's it's ridiculous to claim that a nation that is fighting oppression started the started the fight. A nation that is resisting oppression, resisting the killing of its people, started the fight. It's an absurd. Uh, it's an, a claim. I mean, I don't even know how to answer it. It's such. It's so absurd. The Palestinians are the ones who have been oppressed, whose land has been stolen, whose children are being killed, and they started it. I mean, it's ridiculous. I know it's ridiculous. Yeah. I agree, and and you know the 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 reports that come out sometimes. Um, well, obviously coming from the IDF or the Israeli government officials talking about how Hamas, you know, likes to use human shields or they like to fire weapons from non-military locations like hospitals or mosques, etc. And then um, and then Israel says it has no cho- had no choice but to destroy that location. Is there any truth t- to this, or is this just um, IDF propaganda? Do you think? Well, there's no question that it's idea propaganda, but Israel always has a choice. Israel can choose tomorrow morning to open the Gaza Strip, to lift the siege, to release the political thousands of political prisoners, to let the refugees go to their homes, to comp- pay restitution and and and, um, and compensation to the Palestinians, and end this. It could end tomorrow, but Israel's choice. Israel chooses to continue fight killing. So, of course, Israel has the choice, but it's choosing to do what I believe is the wrong thing. The claim that somehow the Palestinians are doing something wrong by using you know, all these claims of human shields and all that is, compl- is absolute nonsense. And by the way, if you, if you talk about having military bases in, in 
big cent- civilian cent- centers of uh, civilian life, the IDF headquarters is in the center of Tel Aviv. Oh, wow. I mean, uh, military headquarters are almost everywhere all over the world. They're in centers. You know, I used to live in San Diego in Southern California. It's got one of the biggest naval bases uh, in the world, military naval bases in the world. I mean, this is completely, these, these claims are, are little catchphrases, they're little sound bites that they throw out there. And then they just continue to reverberate until they die. It's complete nonsense. <laughs> yeah, the tremendous double standards there. If they're placing massive bases in the middle of uh, huge cities, bigger than what they have in the Gaza Strip. And yeah, yeah. As, as well as that, um, we have to talk about, of course, speaking of catchphrases, um, you know, often those who criticize Israel are accused of being anti-Semitic. What's your thoughts on this? Is this justifiable in any way? And like, what role does it play in the whole conflict? Because it seems to be used as a sort of an all-purpose weapon to prevent any criticism of Israel or Zionism. Well, that's exactly what it's doing. So whereas anti-Semitism used to be racism directed at Jews, today they've redefined it. There's this organization that came from I don't know where, called the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, and they've written down a new definition of of, of what what anti-Semitism is, and it includes basically criticism of Israel and criticism of the project of Israel, of Zionism as a whole. Um, And if you dare say that it's a racist endeavor and so forth, then that's all anti-Semitism. So they had to redefine anti-Semitism so that they can claim that things that I say constitute anti-Semitism, and they can conflate anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism. Um, but that's, you know, that, that's, it's, it's absurd. You know, Jews, first of all, have rejected Israel for a very long time. Many Jews, many Jewish communities have rejected Zionism and, and, uh, and have serious uh, qualms with the state of Israel and, and Israeli policy. Um, probably the largest community of Holocaust survivors, which are the ultra-Orthodox Jews, who make up probably today 30 or 40 percent of, of the Jews in the United Kingdom, Kingdom, for example, are the ultra-Orthodox Jews, and they're all Holocaust survivors, and they all oppose the state of Israel. They're all anti-Zionist. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, a, a rabbi friend who lives in uh, Stamford Hill in London, which is the predominantly ultra-Orthodox community, uh, some 30,000 uh, Jews live there and he said to me I'll give you a hundred pounds for any Israeli flag that you find in Stanford Hill <laughs> so so this claim that somehow opposing Israel is anti-Semitic is complete is, 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 is again it's utter nonsense it's a, it's a soundbite um, to, to, to try to justify what they're doing and then attack anyone who opposes them as racist now the, the other absurdity of this is that if it's racism to oppose what Israel does, if it's racism to oppose the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians, if it's racism to oppose the killing of innocent civilians, if it's racism to oppose uh, the slow genocide and the thousands of political prisoners and on and on, then what is it called when you support that? Hmm. You know, it's absurd. It's exactly the opposite, you know. And so, but again, this is this is these war, this ridiculous war of words that um, that they that they have. They have people out there throwing out all this nonsense, and we just have to be, you know, diligent and and, and stand up to it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a tactic that's used quite a lot nowadays, I think, too. Well, the Labour, look at the Labour, look what they've done to, to Jeremy Corbyn. You know, Jeremy Corbyn has, does not have an anti-Semitic cell in his body or a racist cell in his body. The only reason Jeremy Corbyn is being targeted is because they know Israel and all of its agents, the, the, what they call the Board of Deputies and all these other Israeli agent groups that, 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 that operate within the UK, they know that a Prime Minister Corbyn will stop selling arms to Israel and will hold Israel accountable for its crimes against the Palestinians. And they are afraid of that more than anything. A UK prime minister, uh, the likes of Jeremy Corbyn, will be a game changer internationally, and they know they can't afford for that to happen. So they just like they're they're completely, you know, no holds bar attack part against Jeremy Corbyn, and the whole Labour anti-Semitism thing is only because of his positions on Palestine. It has nothing to do, nothing to do with anti-Semitism whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Interesting. They're like a preemptive strike. They're, they're dealing yes. with the problem before it arrives. Exactly. And they've been doing it for several years. They've been doing it for quite a long time. So that's exactly, exactly what is happening. Another part of this as well, um, I know it's quite a, um, a long story, the story of the Jews and, and all of the history, but um, the Israel's based on the, the concept of the right of return. Um, exactly. So, like Israel was founded on this concept. Um, is it is that legitimate at all? And is that the main argument Israel uses to justify everything that it's it's their land basically, and that's it? <laughs> you know, it's this is this is it's really an absurd kind of a of a, of, a, of an argument. Number one, if if it was historically true that the Jews have returned after two thousand years and that they had a right to return after 2,000 years. So how is it that the very people who say that oppose the right of the Palestinian refugees to return after 70 years? And they claim that they need to move on and forget about it because it was too, it was a lot, too long ago for them to have any rights to return. So 2,000 years is not too long, but 70 years is too long. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is the historical aspect that is highly doubt. It's, you know, I, I I doubt it. I doubt very much that a white European Israeli Jew like myself has any roots in the Middle East whatsoever. I'm sure if I took a genetic test, they won't find a single sem- Semitic cell in my body. And again, the problem. And there's an excellent book actually, which I would highly recommend by the historian Nur Masalha, who teachers in London, I believe, at um, SOAS. Um, And the book is called Palestine, a 4,000-year history. Hmm. And he shows, among other things, that the name Palestine has been used uh, for 4,000 years. But but many, many other issues that relate to this question of, you know, historical rights. I don't think any of this, the right to return, pertains. I mean, is relevant when we talk about the the Jews of the world. I think it absolutely has no relevance whatsoever. I think if anybody has a right to return, it's the it's Palestinian refugees, but certainly not Jews around the world. Yeah, there's, uh, people need to look into the, the, you know, the difference between Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews as well. That's a big piece of the puzzle that's often conveniently overlooked, I suppose, by, um, by the Israeli establishment. They don't want people to understand that and that anti-Semitic actually means anti-Arab like, or, or anti-that well, yes, exactly. region kind of. Well, of course, and 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 the and the the, so the the name Sephardic Jews is is quite ridiculous. These are Arab Jews, 
they call them Sephardic as though they're all from Spain because to say Arab Jews is impolite, you know, because Arab is bad and Jew is good. So they invented all these names for them, like they call them Mizrahi Jews, which means Oriental Jews or Eastern Jews. Um, although many of them came from countries that are west to Palestine, like North Africa or, or, or south, like Yemen. But it's a Eurocentric, racist, colonialist perspective. So they are either Sephardic because they can't be Arab because Arab is, is bad or they are Oriental, whatever that hell that means. Well, you know, speaking of, well, perceptions then and education and things of that nature, I believe that um, indoctrination and education has a role to play here and how things happen over in Israel and, and the conflict with the Palestinians. I mean, is it the case in the Israeli state that the, you know, the IDF and the government is doing, committing all these crimes and that um, against the Palestinians that most Israelis are not aware this is happening or that they are aware and they don't really see any problem with it, if you know what I mean. They are aware and they either don't care or they agree. There's no question the Israelis are aware. It's a small country. Everything is in the news. Um, and everybody has a brother, a cousin, or they themselves are in the army. It's not that they, and nobody's trying to hide anything too. I mean, the, the, the last Israeli elections, everybody was trying to show, all the political parties were trying to show that they are farther to the right and more cruel and will be more cruel to the Palestinians when they or they, if they're given the, the opportunity um, to do so as, you know, become, you know, lead the government, uh, then the other guy, then somebody else. That was the whole thing. So it's not like they they don't know. They know they like. And in fact, that it was the campaign slogan among all of the all, almost all the political parties that we are the true right, not them. And we will deal with the Palestinians better than they have. And Netanyahu has been weak and Netanyahu is, is, is capitulating and so on and so forth. That's been the whole the entire campaign, uh, the, everybody's campaign slogan. Wow, that's incredible. I can't imagine that uh, being in that environment. Uh, I wouldn't, I mean, I would call Netanyahu a few things, but I wouldn't say he wasn't, um, you know, aggressive enough. Or, or that's, I can't even imagine that type of situation. But And that's what politicians and parties tend to do, don't they? They try to say what will please the people. And in Israel, if that means going more extreme, then that's what they'll do. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, then... Looking at the, the actions of the IDF and the brutality and things like that, how do you think they're able to actually go and do those things? Is it down to um, classic, you know, the imperial behavior like the dehumanization of the Palestinians and a combination of that and indoctrination inside Israel, do you think? Well, it's an indoctrination that's been going on for a very long time. The Zionist indoctrination is all about dehumanizing the Palestinians. And so Palestinians never stand a chance because there is no human aspect to them. They are a threat. They are a problem. Um, they have no rights. Um, and that's the context in which um, Israelis learn about Palestinians from from the first thing, you know, from, from, from the first grade, from as soon as they enter school. That's what the image uh, of Palestinians are. And of course, we know that they are the terrorists and they are coming to take our homes and they are um, the threat and so on and so forth. And we also know that they're dirty and lazy and all those other, all those other things that we say about the other. And so there's, they, they don't stand a chance because the, the education system is very thorough. Mm -hmm. In making sure that that students that, that students and, and young Israelis by the time they're eighteen and they're given a gun and a uniform 
they know exactly what's uh, what's expected of them. And then what about things like when we're talking about education in Israel? I mean, you know, Israel is quite a new country. It shouldn't really take that long to absorb, you know, the key points about the history. And when we look at things like, when you look at Zionism, just to quickly go over some key points here, you know, Theodor Herzl and the Jewish state was 1896 and the Balfour Declaration, 1917, the UN partition was... um, you know, the resolution was 47 and Israel's created in 48. And then, of course, the Zionist terrorism was used to help all this take place. Um, I mean, I take it that these sorts of things are, are they're either not taught in Israeli schools or at least the, the whole truth about them is not kind of discussed in a balanced way. Well, they're taught in a very one-sided way. I mean, there's not a single city, I think, in Israel that does not have a Balfour Street or a Balfour Plaza. Whoa. Balfour is a hero. You know, every single city in Israel that I know of has either a Balfour Street or a Balfour Plaza. Um, and Herzl is a hero, of course. And the, and, and, the, and the partition plan, there are streets called the 29th of November because that was the day that the partition plan passed and that was really the de facto the de facto resolution that allowed for the state of Israel to be established. So this is how it's presented. It's presented. These are all, all these things are presented as, 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 as great days of, of, of achievement and victory for us, for the Jews. What about the environment within Israel then? Are there any Israelis who aren't on board with things or is there that kind of pressure to, to go along with all this? There is a very small, very fringe uh, group of people. I mean, a group, of, a very small group of people are on the fringe uh, politically and, and probably socially too, who oppose Zionism and who oppose this and who demand rights for Palestinians and who stand up and who get arrested and, and, and the rest of it. But that's it. It's a very, very small uh, group of people. And again, politically, it has absolutely no influence. It's on the fringe. Looking at the kind of things that, you know, Israel has done over the years and the way that, you know, other countries, well, most of the time there's some sort of pressure to uh, follow the rules when it comes to, you know, the International Declaration of Human Rights and the Geneva Convention. And, um, you know, Israel has seemed to not, doesn't have any respect for those. And also the uh, the treatment of organizations like the Red Cross, you know, reports coming out that they they actively stop groups like those from helping the Palestinians. Um like, do the authorities feel in Israel that the rules just don't apply to them in their situation? Like, or is this just an arrogance thing or, or, or what is it? I think by and large, this, uh, the feeling is, well, you know, our situation is different. So we get a pass um, because, you know, we suffered the Holocaust and because we are surrounded by enemies who want to destroy us and we are surrounded by terrorists. So sometimes we have to do what we have to do. Maybe we don't like it, but, you know, we have to do what we have to do to survive. That's the narrative. And so Israel gets a pass. I see. Okay. So they, yeah, they feel it doesn't apply to them. Um, yes. Well, what was your take on then uh, looking at, well, no, this wasn't recently, but the end of uh, end of 2017, um, the, the moving of the Israeli capital to Jerusalem, which is, of course, you know, the center of the uh, three big religions. And, um, like, what was your reaction to this when it, when it happened? And, like, what impact does something like this have, especially on, on the Palestinians or Israel's neighbors? 
the decision to move them or to recognize Jerusalem as the capital city and to move the American embassy to Jerusalem is, is so reckless and so irresponsible and so uh, stupid and, and based on so much ignorance that one doesn't really even know where to begin. Hmm. You know, Jerusalem, when, when Palestine was partitioned, Jerusalem was declared to be a sovereign entity. So all the embassies of all the countries that do recognize Israel are in Tel Aviv, they're not in Jerusalem, because no one recognized Israel's occupation of Jerusalem. Now, what Israel did throughout 1948 is it attacked and conducted a very effective ethnic cleansing campaign in the western side of Jerusalem to a point that there are there not a single Palestinian was allowed to leave, to remain. Now, there's not a single Palestinian that remained in West Jerusalem. And entire neighborhoods were emptied out completely. The homes, by the way, the neighborhoods are largely still there because these were beautiful neighborhoods. So Israeli Jews took them. But not a single Palestinian was allowed to remain. Um, and nobody recognized that internationally. Then after 19, in 1967, Israel took over the eastern part of the city and is now conducting a campaign of ethnic cleansing uh, in that part of the city and a and, and, uh, very hostile uh, takeover of the Palestinian lands and Palestinian neighborhoods in that part of the city. So nobody ever recognized that. Um, and the, the, there are diplomatic missions in Jerusalem, but they do not report to their embassies in Tel Aviv. They report directly to their capitals because they predate the establishment of the State of Israel. And so they are actually, they were there because the different you know, countries, the European countries wanted a stake in Jerusalem, and so they had a, a consulate there. And the consuls, the consul generals in Jerusalem are typically like, have their, are like ambassadors. They report directly to their capitals. But, you know, all of this was, you know, international law, diplomacy, and of course the fact that Jerusalem has been a Muslim and Arab country for over a thousand, a city, excuse me, for over a thousand years. Um, and the absurdity, and is one of the holiest cities um in Islam, and so setting, you know, throwing all that aside is so none of it matters. The only thing that matters is that Israel wants it, and that's exactly what American U.S. foreign policy, um, and to a large degree British foreign policy as well today, um, that that's how they're determined by what Israel wants. They are written, written, and, and prescribed by Netanyahu, and um, and then the U.S. and the U.K. and everybody follows suit. That's exactly the problem. Jerusalem is not the only. Uh, although it's it got a lot of attention, it's not the only case. Yeah, it's it must be as well like a psychological blow. It's like um, rubbing salt in the wound for the the Muslim community and the Palestinians as well to do something like that on top of everything else that's happened. It's a kind of another like a provocative act that just generates more hatred and anger. Yes, and you know, and at the bottom, I mean, the, the, there's two issues here. Um, one is that, and, and both issues are equally unacceptable. One is that America thinks and Israel thinks that it can determine the fate of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is going to be, and I, I, I expect it will remain an Arab and Muslim city, even though Israel is trying to destroy that. Hmm. Um, and so the fact that Israel and the United States and others think that they can just change that uh, overnight through violence and and uh, and the campaign of ethnic cleansing is horrifying. And the other thing is that um, the pace with which Israel is erasing the heritage, the ancient heritage of Jerusalem, is 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 is, is, is stunning. Really, it's horrifying. 
the, the, any, any archaeological sites that do not confirm the Zionist narrative are being destroyed. Israel just destroyed uh, one of the oldest cemeteries in Palestine, a cemetery that had soldiers of Saladin buried there. It's been a cemetery in Jerusalem for over a thousand years. Gone. It's been just completely destroyed. Mosques, ancient churches, archaeological sites, anything that happened over the last 2,000 years, unless it validates the, the existence of Jews, is being wiped out. And, you know, Jerusalem has a rich Muslim, Arab, and uh, Christian um, heritage, and it's all being erased, it's all being wiped out, and it's being done very fast. So unless the world stands up, there will be no Jerusalem as we know it. And there are serious attempts to get rid of the, you know, the Golden Dome, the the, uh, the sanctuary, the Holy Sanctuary, mm. a Golden Dome which was built as a sanctuary. Um, the, the, the the Zionist zealots, the religious zealots, are look and not even some of them are not religious. Some of them are secular. Are are looking at it and planning regularly what it's going to look like once it's taken down and a new Jewish temple is being built. This is not just some act of a few fringe lunatics anymore. They have thirty, forty, fifty thousand followers who walk up onto the, you know, what they call the Temple Mount or the Haram Sharif, the Holy Sanctuary, to walk and pray and 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 demonstrate a Zionist Jewish presence in order to intimidate the Palestinians. And so that is a real threat as well. That is an absolute real threat. One of the most you know, iconic symbols of Jerusalem, which is a golden dome, is really under threat right now. That's definitely part of the modus operandi of controlling forces or people with imperialist tendencies to destroy culture and history because then they, they can replace the real history with their own version of events. And that... Like to go deep into this, it kind of allows them to um, indoctrinate people further. It kind of gives, allows them to educate people into their version of history because they've destro- uh, destroyed the real thing. Yeah, of course. And, you know, again, Jerusalem is, is, is a lot more volatile and, and, and at least for this region, uh, a, a very important symbol. So to allow Israel to do this is reckless and, um, and really un. un inexcusable. I'm sure you've heard of this concept and this is probably slightly bigger picture but you know there was an idea going around before about the I think the Oded Yinon plan like the idea coming from the Zionist contingent that they wanted Israel to kind of um you know, expand out and take over more land and that they would do it if they they could kind of get away with it, basically, which we already talked about. Um, Like among the Zionists, do you think there are real urges for for this to manifest, you know, that Israel would expand and be a a bigger force in the Middle East? I don't think there's any any, any, um, ambition to take more land. Um, Taking more land would mean taking on more Arabs and I don't think Israel, anybody in Israel has an appetite for that. The land of Israel is as it is today. You know, it's from the river to the sea, um, and all the groups. Uh, it's funny to say right, left, and center because they're all so far to the right that it's that it's uh, ridiculous. But all the groups, all the Zionist groups, are quite happy. I think with having uh, all of Palestine from the river to the sea. They do, however, um, on a regular basis, 
operate in Arab countries, in all the countries that surround Palestine, in order to exert influence uh, by bribing leaders, by supporting and, and, and arming uh, certain leaders against others, and, and, and so forth. So that is taking place. So the control that they have beyond the boundaries of Palestine itself have to do with that kind of control using... Um, you know, using their powers uh, covertly, mostly in the Arab countries. And Netanyahu said said very clearly um, not long ago that Israel has never had a better relationship with the Arab world and the Muslim world. And it's true. It's true that Israel has good relations today with the Arab and Muslim world. And I wouldn't be surprised if, as part of this ridiculous uh, so-called deal of the century, uh, that there will be diplomatic relations with Saudi Arabia. As for our last um, item here, Miko, um, you know, I like to look at solutions towards the end. Now, not that we could, not, not that us two could sort this out overnight or anything like that. But, um, you know, looking at, at the way, the, the bigger picture here, and like I brought up the fact that Israel um, doesn't, there's no incentive for it to obey international rules like the Geneva Convention and International Declaration of Human Rights. Um, you know, the one country in the world that could possibly you know, put pressure on Israel to do that would be the US. But of course, we know that because of the close ties and the the big Zionist influence in, um, you know, how maybe US Congress, the US government, um, it kind of makes the whole thing tricky. So, I mean, uh, how do you think this could be resolved? Is it fair to say that uh, Zionism um, in the US government is the real problem here? And also... um, are there any other ways of forcing Israel to kind of change how it operates? Well, I would start, first of all, I think that's an incredibly important uh, point that you're making here. Uh, and it's a good way to end um, this conversation. I think that it is inevitable, not only necessary and, and uh, morally the right thing, but it is inevitable that Zionism will collapse just like apartheid in South Africa and will give way to the building of a real democracy with equal rights. In Palestine. I think that's inevitable. The question is how soon it's going to happen and how many Palestinians are going to die before it happens. So I'm a, I'm a very, very uh, firm believer in uh, the call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions. Mm. I think the Palestinians have given us a gift when they came out with this call, uh, a call to impose boycott, divestment, and sanctions against the state of Israel until three very clear and what I consider to be very remedial and reasonable demands are met. Ending the military occupation, equal rights between Palestinians and Israelis, and materializing the right of the Palestinians, or not just the right, but the return of the Palestinians to their lands and their homes. I think these are very probably some of the most reasonable demands ever made by a national liberation movement. They are completely remedial. They harm no one. They only remedy the situation in which Palestinians have been placed as a result of the establishment of the state of Israel. Um, And it is the right thing to do. And all of these demands have been, in one way or another, already sanctified and accepted uh, by international law. So I believe that the world needs to step up. I think that more countries need to boycott uh, Israel and Israeli products. They need to impose sanctions on Israel. There needs to be not a single weapon ever sold to Israel, uh, not a dime or a penny uh, provided to the state of Israel. And I believe that... uh, 
people of conscience need to demand that their governments send away the Israeli ambassadors and call their ambassadors back from Tel Aviv. You know, until such time as that happens, nothing's going to change. But I believe it's inevitable. I think, you know, it took a long time for, for countries around the world to do this with South Africa. Hopefully it'll be quicker with Palestine. And then when that happens, I believe that the change will be quick and very, very positive. And it's going to be a change that will be good for not only Palestinians, but it's going to be good for everybody who lives in Palestine, both Jews and Palestinians, both Israelis and Palestinians. And for the last question here, do you think that something like the the two-state solution is viable? Or if not, like what solution could work? And also, how would this come about, do you think? No, the two-state solution was never viable. The two-state solution was just an excuse for to allow Israel to conduct the 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 or to grab control and to get more control over Palestine while pretending that it wants peace. The two-state solution was never a serious um, was never a serious possibility. Um, and so the, the the options that we're faced with are a an occupied racist an occupied Palestine with a racist regime which is Israel, mm. or a free Palestine with equal rights and uh, the return of the refugees, which I believe is the, is the option that, 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 that presents hope for Palestinians, for Israelis, for the entire region. Um, and I think, like I said before, I think it's inevitable. I think as a result of the, the, the more and more people demanding that their governments heed the call of uh, boycott, divestment, and sanctions, that they will have to, governments will have to do this and, and politicians will have to do this uh, because it's going to be their constituents' demand. And then just like South Africa collapsed, apartheid collapsed, there will be uh, an Israeli prime minister who will stand up just like the clerk did. Um, and it may well be Netanyahu who stands up and says, you know, we are releasing the all the prisoners and we are calling a one-person, one-vote election. And that's going to be the beginning of the end. Once you have a one-person, one-vote election, you have a legislature that represents all the people, which has never happened in Palestine. And you have a government that represents all the people. Um, then we will begin to see change. Well, yeah, that sounds that sounds good. Certainly optimism is good and it, has, it definitely has to stop at some stage. Um, well, thanks for being on the program today, Miko. It's been great to get your perspective on things and I hope uh, people continue to listen to your message and, um, you know, try to make some positive change uh, in this situation. Absolutely. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Resolving Reality Radio. That was Israeli author, public speaker, and human rights activist Miko Peled. Miko's book is called The General Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, plus his website is mikopeled.com, and the links for those will be in the description. Visit our website, resolvingreality.com, for all of our content, platforms, and social media profiles. We'll be back soon with another episode of Resolving Reality Radio. So until then, take care and enjoy Resolving Reality. You are listening to Resolving Reality Radio, the podcast for Ireland's new independent media website, resolvingreality.com.